This is the word of the Lord from Leviticus 21, 10 through 15. The priest who is the highest among his brothers, who has had the anointing oil poured on his head and has been ordained to wear the clothes, must not dishevel his hair or tear his clothes. He must not go near any dead person or make himself unclean even for his father and mother. He must not leave the sanctuary or he will desecrate the sanctuary of God for the consecration of the anointing oil of God is on him. I am the Lord. He is to marry a woman who is a virgin. He is not to marry a widow, a divorced woman, or a woman defiled by prostitution. He is to marry a virgin from his own people so that he does not corrupt the bloodline among his people. For I am the Lord who sets him apart. Good morning, church. Uh, If you are new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad to have the opportunity to open up God's word in Leviticus. We are going through kind of verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Leviticus. And uh, last night, Erin Lynn looked at me and she goes, I don't even know what you're preaching about tomorrow. She goes, what are you, what are you even preaching about? And I said, oh, I, I decided to scrap Leviticus. I'm going to do a sermon called Miracles Do Happen and just talk about how the playoffs, uh, the Mariners will be in the playoffs for the first time in 21 years. But no, I'm not going to actually do that. Uh, I do have a baseball story coming up though. So um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the next today and then four more Sundays in the book of Leviticus. I'm also really pleased to announce that my good uh, close personal friend, Rabbi Matt Rosenberg, will be here two Sundays from now to teach on the biblical feasts, all of the festivals and and how they point to uh, Jesus, or as he's going to say, Yeshua. So just get used to it now. As Matt would say, uh, Jesus' mom never called him Jesus. He's used to it by now, but that was not what he was called when he was growing up. Uh, so Matt will be here in a couple weeks. And then when we finish up Leviticus, we have a short little three-week window of time before Advent kicks off. And so uh, the elder team, we've decided to just do a short little three-week series on the New Testament book of Jude. And so if you want to read the book of Jude, you can literally read the book of Jude in about five minutes. It's a short little one chapter, about, was it 20, 20-ish verses? Um, and it's got, it's jam-packed. So we're going to do that. Then we'll do Advent, and then it'll be the New Year, and we'll start a longer series then. And I'm, I'll tell you about Advent and the longer uh, New Year series later. But for today, we're going to tackle two chapters of Leviticus, chapters 21 and 22, in a sermon that I have entitled, Rights and Responsibilities. Rights and Responsibilities. So before we do anything else, let's pray again. Lord, I am asking for your help. I want to communicate truth from your word and only that. Lord, would you guide my words and help me to only uh, teach that which is in line with your truth. And God, for every single one of us, Would you give us an opportunity right now to reflect on our lives? Lord, places where you've given us leadership, places where you've given us authority, positions of responsibility, Lord, we want to honor you. We want to learn from these words. And Lord, we want to have our hearts transformed by you. And so even right now, God, as we just pause and take a couple of deep breaths, as we just are mindful that you are here with us, Lord, we bring our restless hearts, our anxious hearts, our foolish hearts, our fearful hearts, where we bring all of who we are before you right now and ask, Lord God, that you would meet with us. In Jesus' good name we pray. And everybody said, amen. All right, uh, you guys know the game Two Truths and a Lie? You guys know that? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you two truths and a lie. If you don't know the game, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say three things about myself and one of them is not true, okay? Uh, number one, I am married to a woman who has the same first name as me. Yeah, that's okay. 
Uh, Number two, I am completely ambidextrous. Number three, uh, about six years ago, I sang the national anthem at a Red Sox game at Fenway Park. Okay. The lie is I am not ambidextrous. I can barely use my left hand functionally for anything other than drumming. Uh, No, uh, I did get to sing the national anthem at Fenway Park. You doubted me. I actually did do that. It's a long story, and I won't bore you with it, but um, it was, it's even weirder than that. It was with a country group. So, um, yeah, ask me afterwards. But anyways, so the cool thing about it was I love baseball. I'm a huge baseball fan, and I've been to some of the major, you know, like the older parks, like Wrigley. This is my first time at Fenway. And because I was involved in this event, we did a thing in the morning. It was a fundraiser for Wounded Warrior Project. And then that night, we got free tickets to the game. We got to sing the national anthem, and they gave us this backstage pass thing that let me go past security. So I got to go past security. I got to go down the hallways. I got to walk past, you know, the, the locker room, the clubhouse. And I, I was just feeling so, like, so important. I got to go out on the field. I got to walk around the dirt of the warning track. I got to put my hand on the green monster, if you know anything about Fenway Park, the big giant green wall out in left field. And, and Aaron Lynn was there with me, and we got pictures from it. And, and it was just this, like, I am feeling so, like, like, kind of important, right? I'm kind of big for I'm on the field. I go past security. I am security. I've got this badge. But then this lady shows up, and she's like, no, no, no. You walk down this part and you go sit in this ugly cafeteria room. You do not go in that nice green room. You don't go, that's the locker room. You do not go in there. No, you may not hug David Ortiz. You stay away from David Ortiz. And the one that just always stuck with me is don't touch the grass. If you've ever gone to any sort of like baseball park event, major league, they are, they are just absolutely religious. And I use that word on purpose about the, the, the grass. Don't touch the grass. Stay off the grass. I'm like, well, Now that's all I want to do is touch the grass. The more you say it, the more it rises up within me because of sin nature and all that. But anyways, the the idea there was that I was given this pass. I had this incredible privilege. I had this incredible right. I had the right to go backstage. I had the right to go out on the field. I had the right to sing and I had the microphone and all this stuff. But I also had all of these rules, these, these pressures, these parameters, these responsibilities that were placed on me. Yes, I could go sing on the field, but no, I could not ask David Ortiz for an autograph, even though it was his final season. He was playing amazing. Why am I talking about this? I have no idea. No, I do have an idea. The reason why I'm talking about this is that Leviticus chapters 21 and 22 are all about the priesthood. It's all about the priesthood, these these men that serve in a really important role in the life of the people of Israel. And as you go through these chapters, you see that there are certain rights that they are granted. There are certain privileges that they're granted because of their role of leadership, But you also see that there are certain rules, certain responsibilities, things that are placed on them that they are not allowed to do that actually the average Israelite would have been allowed to do. This this idea of with increased responsibility comes increased uh, rights, but also certain parameters. And so this is relevant for us, and I hope to apply it in two ways. First of all is every single one of us Every single one of us, even you younger people or children who are in the room, you have certain places of influence and authority. You have places of leadership in your life, whether it's here in the church or in business or those of you who are parents, you have a place of leadership. And with that leadership and with that authority comes certain rights, but also comes certain responsibilities. 
But second, and more important, is these verses point to Jesus, our great high priest, in a really cool and a really unique way that I hope to to show us at the end. So we're just going to simply say, what, what do these verses mean? Like, what's going on back then? What could they mean for us? And then how do they point us to Jesus? This is basically every single sermon I ever preach. Okay, let's go back then. Let's talk about what these chapters are saying. Okay, so to start with, let's talk about the rights that the priests get. There's certain priestly rights that all of the priests, uh, the, the family, the tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron. So here's the things that they get to enjoy. I'm going to dip back into Leviticus into some other things we've seen before as well. The first thing, the first right that they have, the first privilege they enjoy is that of power. Chapter 10, God is speaking to the, the, to Moses and to the priest says, teach the Israelites all these statutes and help them to obey. If you remember all the different uh, you know, verses about skin diseases and mildew and all of these ritual impurities, the priests have the authority to show up and say, yes, you may go to the tabernacle to worship or no, you have to stay outside. That's a lot of power, is it not? They're the ones in charge. They're the ones that say, yes, no, do this, don't do that. That is a great position of power. The second right that the priests enjoy is that of proximity. You go back to chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement. The regular old Israelites, well, they could be in the outer courts. They could hang out in the, that tent of meeting, kind of in the, 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 the tented off sort of area that's about twice the size of this room. But the priests got to go actually into the tent of meeting, into the holy place. And then the high priest, only he gets to go right into the holiest of holy places, the back little quarantined off area where the Ark of the Covenant sits. So the more responsibility, the higher position of leadership you're in, the closer you get into the center of the action. You're right there. Just like I got the, the card that let me kind of go right down on the field where the actions happen. The priests get to be close to the presence of God. The third right that the priests enjoy is that of praise, honor, respect, to be thought well of. Here in our passage in 28, uh, ch- sorry, chapter 21, verse 8, it says, you, the people, are to consider, to think about the priest as holy, distinct, separate, set apart, It also goes on in verse 10. We heard this in our scripture reading. It says, to the one who is highest among his brothers. That there's a place of reverence and awe and respect for positions of leadership. I know that in our culture, we have actually really um, devalued those positions of honor and those places of leadership, broadly speaking. But there used to be a day, even in our own culture, where you you only address, this is another two two truths and a lie. I got to meet President George W. Bush one time. And they were like, Mr. President and, and Mrs. Bush. Like, you, you will call it. You don't say, hey, George. Like, again, once they say these things, that's all I want to do. But, you know, these, these like, respect and honor, and you only address them in this way, and you only speak to them in this way. The, the priests enjoy this right to be thought of well and to be spoken well of. And lastly, they have the right to Provision. Uh, a big chunk of chapter 22, and you can read through this, I'm, I'm kind of going high level overview here, but a big chunk of chapter 22 is rules about who does and doesn't get to eat of the food and the sacrifices that are brought in. 
So for example, it says if the priest has an adult daughter, but she still lives at home and she's not yet married, she does get to eat of the sacrifices. The people bring the meat, they bring the animals, they sacrifice them. The priest gets to take it home. His family has food and they get to eat. But if the adult daughter marries somebody who's not part of the tribe of Levi, she marries outside of the clan, well, she doesn't get to come and the son-in-law doesn't get to come. They've now established their own family and they don't get to eat of the priestly sacrifices. So they have this right to provision. This is literally how they feed their families. The sacrifices come in and they take the food, the grain, the fruit, the, the vegetables, and the meat, and that is how they live. So this is, this is kind of a sweet deal, right? I mean, just pause for a moment. Don't you like to be the one that's kind of in charge? Don't you like to be in the center of the action? Don't you like it when people speak well of you? Don't you like it when, don't you like free food? Come on, right? Like, this is a good, this is a good deal. It's kind of a sweet gig. I might want to be a priest. Oh, but then there's these responsibilities that show up. There's two sets of, of lists. The first one is for all of the priests. Back in 21 verses one through four, there are laws and rules about family deaths. You know that in the ancient world, and actually in many parts of the world to this day, people interact with death a lot more closely than we do. We, we have it off kind of in, in, in uh, hospitals and funeral homes, but you know, even when I've been in other parts of the world, people have to just bury relatives. It happens all the time. Well, if you remember too in the book of Leviticus, to touch a dead body is to, is to become ritually impure. It's to have like the yuck of death on you and you can't bring that into the tabernacle because the tabernacle is a little miniature Eden where it's a representation of God's perfect rule and reign over everything. So if you're a priest and a family member dies, you cannot touch that dead body except for the closest immediate family members, mom, dad, brother, sister, wife. Quick side note, you remember how in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, you remember how it says that the guy was beaten up by robbers and looking like a dead body on the side of the road? Go back and read that and, and consider this chapter of Leviticus when it says that the priest and the Levite walked by without touching the dead body. It's a little side note. That one's free of charge. Um, there are rules about their appearance. No, no pagan appearances. They're not allowed to gash their bodies. They're not allowed to shave bald patches in their hair or in the sides of their beard because that's what the pagan priests of the surrounding nations would do. God says, we're going to do things differently when you're grieving or when you're leading. We're not going to have you appear like those other priests. You're going to dress a certain way. You're going to appear a certain way. There were standards for who they could and couldn't marry. For all the priests, there were two rules in particular. Number one, they couldn't marry someone who had been divorced. And they couldn't marry someone who had been sexually promiscuous. Now, the average Israelite, there's, there's nothing wrong with marrying someone who has been through a divorce. And, and, and even divorce in and of itself is not in and of itself automatically sinful. There are some divorces, yes, that are sinful. There are some divorces that are biblically justified. They're always a result of sin. But, but, but a, a, a divorced person is not permanently damaged goods, and the average Israelite would be allowed to marry. And even someone who had been sexually promiscuous is not beyond the redeeming work of God. But God says for the priest, in order to serve in this role, I'm going to put a higher standard on who you can and can't marry because you're here to represent my holiness. And there's a passage here in 21, verses 16 through 24, that talks about physical defects. 
Men who had uh, blindness or they were lame, they couldn't walk, some sort of a physical deformity. It even talks about like we're a hunchback or are a, uh, a dwarf or a little person. It even talks about having reproductive organ issues. You were not allowed to serve in that role as priesthood. And these are some of those verses that skeptics of the Bible love to point out and say, see, God, God hates, you know, disabled people. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. But remember what we're talking about. It's a particular role of leadership that represents God's holistic rule and reign. How many of you are grateful that there will be no disabilities in the new heavens and the new earth, but we will all be made completely whole, spiritually and physically? And that's what Eden, that's what, that's what this tabernacle is representing. It's a miniature Eden as a signpost pointing to something greater that is yet to come. And then lastly... All of the rules about just ritual impurities for the priests. It's, you can't touch a dead body. You can't have the skin disease. You, uh, the, if an unclean, like, swarming creature, like a lizard, climbs on you, or if you have one of those discharges that we talked about a few months ago, you can't go to work. Take the day off. Ritually wash. Pick it back up tomorrow. Could you imagine having to call in for work? Hey, I can't come into work. I have a really bad skin rash. Hey, I can't come into work today. I, a lizard climbed on me. Uh, <laughs> some of you try that next time at Starbucks or whatever. Okay, um, now these are the rules for just all of the priests. But guess what? There's a few extra rules for the high priest, and they are as follows. More rules about clothing and appearance. Even higher standards are given for the high priest. They can't have disheveled hair or torn clothes. And a lot of that is related to, again, mourning practices. You know that in the Bible, when, when somebody would die or when somebody was grieving, they would often like tear their clothes and pour dirt on their head. And, and God says, for the high priest, you can't grieve like that. You're going to still represent my holiness and my cleanness, even when you're going through a grief. There's an even higher standard for family deaths. It says in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 21, no touching a dead body, not even the immediate family members of mother and father. The high priest. Now, again, remember, is it a, is it a sin to bury a family member? Absolutely not. This is not about morality. This is not about a sin or a right or wrong thing. It's about God saying, I'm putting you in this specific role of leadership. You are representing me in a really unique way. And so I'm putting extra, uh, an extra high bar on you. And then lastly, marriage standards. There's even higher marriage standards for the high priest. Not only could the high priest not marry a divorcee or someone who had been promiscuous, but there's the additional rule in marriage that he couldn't marry even a widow. Only marry someone who is unmarried, a virgin, from within your own clan, because this is about the bloodlines being um, clear for succession. The priestly role came from fathers to sons. Now, some of these sound strange to us, do they not? I mean, this has been kind of our whole journey through the book of Leviticus. This comes to us from, uh, you know, roughly 3,500 years ago in a completely different part of the world with different customs. But we should probably exercise a little bit of humility when it comes to holding our cultural standards over the Bible's cultural standards. Might I remind you that our cultural standards are also kind of weird? Going back to my baseball analogy, what's the deal with the grass? Well, I actually know what the deal with the grass is. It's that if I go out on the grass and I mess up the grass, if I make a little divot or I, I poke a hole or something like that, this, this athlete 
who is paid way too much money. He's running. He trips on the divot. He, he, he injures his ankle, and then now he's out. And the baseball team is like, we paid that guy a ton of money to be on that field playing baseball. And that idiot, uh, you know, guy with that country group made a, made a divot in our grass, and now our left fielder is out, and we're not going to make the playoffs. It's like, there is a rationale behind it. It's like, you can be on the dirt, stay off the grass. And like, that's kind of weird. But if you understand, okay, that has some rationale behind it. The more we understand about the world that the Bible comes to us from, the more we can understand, yeah, there's rationale behind it. These rules are meant to teach and communicate something, and we should not be prideful as though all of our cultural standards make complete and total sense. Now, how do we interact with these ideas, okay? That's what it says. It's it's, it's not a a terribly difficult thing to comprehend that these priests are going to be set apart in a unique role, and then there's some unique job requirements. By the way, quick show of hands. How many of you have in your job certain requirements or certain rules that just make no sense to you whatsoever? Anybody? Okay, yeah. (laughs) That's great. We should start like like a comment box somewhere. Now, what do we do with this, though? What do we do with this? I want to share with you four thoughts that I think can apply to us from these passages, okay? The first thought is this. Increased authority means increased rights and responsibilities. When you take on more authority, when you take on a position of leadership, when you take on a position of responsibility, you're going to have certain rights that increase, but you will also have certain responsibilities that increase at the same time. Let me give a couple of analogies, okay? Um, how many of you in your work, uh, in your, in your role at your job, how many of you have something like a company credit card that you're allowed to use? Okay. Good handful of you. Where are we going for lunch after this, by the way? You chuckle, right? Because your company gave you a card and they say, swipe this, take clients out to lunch, go fill up the, the, the gas tank on the company car. But no, don't take your pastor out to lunch just because he pressured you publicly in front of everybody. No, don't buy your wife or your girlfriend jewelry. No, don't, don't spend it on, you know, Mariners you know, playoff tickets. Or like, you can't use it for certain things. They've given you a card. That's an incredible right. That's an incredible privilege. Go spend money. Not that way. Right? Some of you are, are teachers and you work with children or parents. You have children of your own. There are certain rights and certain privileges that come with being in authority over children. You know what it is? Like as parents, those three magical words, time for bed, <laughs> right? Or, or if they didn't hear that one, it's go to bed, like the other three words, right? You, you have authority over the child. You get to tell them what to do. If you're a teacher, you're, you're working with kids, hey, sit down, go to your desk. But there's also certain parameters around how you can treat them. You don't treat them in a belittling sort of way. Or, you know, if you work in a school, you don't show them, you know, age-inappropriate sort of videos on YouTube or whatever. There's all these parameters around how you interact with them. So there's incredible rights and there's incredible responsibilities. I think about this in my role in ministry, and any of you that have that, have some sort of a place in the church of a, of a position of leadership, all of those same rights apply to ministry leaders like a pastor or a deacon. The, the idea of power, Hebrews 13, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Wow, it's a weighty verse. There's power, there's authority. Proximity. Um, not necessarily being closer to God because we are all priests and we all have equal access to the Lord. But do you know what I get proximity to? I get proximity 
to incredible moments of stories of transformation in people's lives. Things that I can't get up here and I can't talk about publicly because it belongs to someone else. It's their story. But I've been there in the room. I've been there as someone takes their final breaths and passes into the arms of a savior. I've been there when someone confessed to an affair and there was healing and reconciliation. I've been there when someone had been doubting their salvation for years and the light bulb moment went on and they're like, I am so secure in Jesus. I've had some incredible proximity to these moments in ministry. Even, uh, you know, praise. Let the elders who rule well be worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. I have to confess, for, for many years, both with leading worship or preaching, I struggled to receive a compliment. Hey, Aaron, that was a really good sermon. Really loved what you said. And I'd be like, hey, you know, just only Jesus is good. And I would be very deflective because it felt like some, somehow like it was prideful to like, oh, yeah. But I think there's a good place for someone to be able to say, hey, you did a good job. And I say, thank you. I appreciate that. Even the provision. I, I also really struggled for years to ever talk about tithing or giving. And I'm still learning and I'm growing in that. To be able to say like, hey, please give your tithes and offerings so that we can keep our electricity bill on at home. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, don't those who preach the gospel have a right to earn their living from preaching the gospel? It's right there in the text. Increased authority means certain rights, but boy, did I feel those responsibilities as a pastor as well. And all of those things that have been um, so discouraging, these public stories of ministry leaders failing and, and, and in tragic and spectacular sorts of ways, I feel those sorts of things. So you have places of authority, you have places of leadership. What are those rights and what are those responsibilities? Second thought, it's a good thing to embrace responsibility. Some of you are like, can you tell my teenager that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good thing to embrace responsibility. This is actually one of the ways that we can image God. It's one of the ways that we can, can show what God is like because God, as we heard even in our call to worship today, God is responsible. Could you imagine waking up this morning and be like, where is the sun? Why did the sun not rise? Do you know why the sun rose? Because God made it happen. Do you know why you have, your heart is still beating? Do you know why you have oxygen in your lungs? Because God made it. Do you know why the universe doesn't just like disintegrate like at the end of that one Avengers movie? Because Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power and he kicked Thanos' butt. Well, it's the devil, but I'm getting ahead of myself here, right? The, the whole thing holds together because God is responsible. He can be trusted. And so when you take on responsibility and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna serve in this way or I'm gonna care for somebody in this way, that's a good thing to do. Far too many people want to avoid responsibility, I mean, this is a, such a problem with uh, people like politicians who are trained in the art of evading responsibility. It's always, well, the federal government did that, or the state government did that, or, 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 or you know, if, if a, you know, an unhealthy sports team, why'd you lose? Well, because this guy didn't do his job, or that guy didn't do the job. Like, we, it's so endemic in our sinful fallen nature to try to pass off the responsibility. Dear human, it's a good thing to take on responsibility. Also, it is a good thing to exercise our rights. Now, this one might make some of you a little bit more nervous because particularly as followers of Jesus, you say, well, didn't Jesus lay aside all of his rights? And didn't Jesus just humble himself all the way and didn't, you know, didn't do things like that? And, and what I would say to you is this. 
Yes, Jesus humbled himself from the position of being, you know, uh, uh, the, the full access of his divinity. Jesus never stopped being God, but he laid aside the prerogative to use his divine attributes at will. But do you know that Jesus still exercised a lot of authority? He still exercised his rights as a leader? Did Jesus not tell his disciples, go to this town and go proclaim the good news? Did he not tell his disciples, go, go get the donkey, go get the foal of a donkey from this place and bring it back to me? Did he not tell his disciples, go? He gave instructions to his disciples. He exercised leadership. In fact, my favorite verse where Jesus does that is in the gospel of John, when he gets into the boat, he'd been preaching all day. They start to row across the stormy sea and it says that Jesus was asleep in the front of the boat on the cushion. The word the is my favorite word because it means that there was one cushion and Jesus took it. I love that. (laughs) Right? So yes, Jesus humbled himself, but he still exercised his rights of leadership. Even, you know, Paul, the apostle Paul, when he was arrested in Philippi, they would get thrown into jail. They worshiped the Lord. An earthquake came. The, you know that story and all that stuff. Well, the next day, Paul gets up and he goes to the, the magistrate. And he goes, excuse me. I was arrested, beaten, and imprisoned without a trial. I am a Roman citizen. Somebody screwed up. It's my paraphrase. It's in the Greek, okay? Listen. It is a good thing to take on responsibility. And it is a good thing to be able to exercise your rights for the sake of the gospel. And lastly, both our rights and our responsibilities can be misused. Obviously, I think you can think about how our rights can be misused. The misuse of rights, these these four that I've identified, power becomes abuse. Instead of using your strength and your authority to build up and to empower, it becomes, I'm going to take. I'm going to take from you. So power can become abuse. Proximity can become distance. You say, I've got all this, I've got the right to go into these, you know, secret places, or I get to go backstage, or I get to go into the, the inner sanctum, so I'm going to keep a distance from the people that I'm supposed to actually care for. Praise can become Pride. Yes, that's right, I am good. I do a good job. Oh, yeah, the, the, the puffing up of man's empty praise. And lastly, provision can become greed. That credit card analogy, right? Well, I'll just, you know, add a few extra appetizers on here. I'll just, I'll just top off my personal vehicle a little bit here, right? It can, it can turn into greed and, and a lust for more. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands, but I'm sure you can think of a situation or somebody in your life or someone you've seen or known who had a position of authority misused their rights and it was harmful to those under their authority. What about you? Have you ever misused your rights? Have you ever had a position of leadership or authority and one of these distortions has happened? You know, it's interesting. On the flip side, our responsibilities can also be misused. Did you know that? You say to me, well, well, Aaron, hold on a second. Responsibility is this good thing, right? We're supposed to take responsibility. How can responsibility be misused? Well, I don't know. Over-responsibility? Have you ever taken on more than you can handle? Have you ever felt a burden or a pressure either from the outside or from the inside to just say yes to everything, to try to do everything? You know what's interesting about these chapters in Leviticus is it assumes that the priests are going to miss some days of work. 
In Leviticus chapter 22, it says, when you become ritually impure through a skin disease or a discharge or one of these animals, you must ceremonially bathe, take the day off, pick back up the next day. Or even for the sacrifices that the priest would have to offer. You remember the, the sacrifice, the priest would have to go in. What's the first sacrifice he would have to offer? He would have to offer a sacrifice for his own sin first. So even though the high priest is put in this great position of leadership and position of responsibility, it's still known he's a flawed, sinful person. And these other priests, they're finite, limited human beings. You are a finite, limited human being. You can only do so much. And when you try to take on more than you can, when you try to not let Jesus uphold the universe by the word of his power, well, it sure can lead to some resentment. It can lead to resentment in the heart of, why do I have all this? And why do I do more than these other people? And why, you can see this like with, with Mary and with Martha. Martha's just taking on all the responsibility and she's really resentful that Mary is just sitting there at the feet of Jesus. Well, she's taking on more than is her position. And then even beyond that, it can lead to a form of like escapism where you say, I'm so burdened. I'm so responsible. I'm going to go seek pleasure. I'm going to go run. I'm literally, maybe literally going to run away from my responsibilities or I'm going to run away through substances or whatever might make me feel better. Friends, it is a good thing to exercise your rights, but they can be misused. It is a good thing to take on responsibility, but there is a limit to that as well because none of us are God. You are not God. I am not God. We are finite, limited human beings. Now, speaking of God, how does this help point us to Jesus? Because Jesus is our great high priest, is he not? So any of this that was, that was foreshadowing something to come in the person and the work of Jesus, our Messiah. So let's think about this. Jesus before he was Jesus of Nazareth, he was the Son of God, existing in eternity past in perfect glory and perfect communion. And he holds every right, does he not? Jesus holds every right in his divinity. And he's, he's, he's got proximity, closeness with the other persons of the Trinity. He's got all power. He created the universe by the word of his power. He deserves all praise, anything good that we could say or anything good that we could think. And he even deserves provision. Though he needs nothing from us, everything belongs to him and we give it back to him as an act of worship. He has every right, does he not? If Jesus says jump, we say how high. If Jesus says, you know, uh, 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 go to bed, we say yes, yes, sir. He holds every right. But what have we done, friends? We've sinned. We've gone our own way. We've wandered. We've taken matters into our own hands. We've misused our rights. We've misused our responsibilities. And we've created a gigantic mess of the world. So the good news of the gospel then moves from the glory of God to the fact that Jesus came in the flesh to take responsibility for a mess that he did not create. And Jesus lived a perfect life and he suffered and he died in our place to take responsibility. God treated him who knew no sin, treated him as sin. So what? So that we might become the righteousness of God. So though he did nothing wrong, he took responsibility for what was our mess, 
what was our fault. And when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, friends, we can know that we're forgiven. We can know that we're cleansed. We can know that we're made whole. But I have good news. He didn't stay dead. Because on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave and he stood in front of his disciples and he ascended to heaven where now he is highly exalted. And boy, if he deserved our praise before, how much more does he deserve our praise that he is not only the creator and the sustainer of all things, but he's the redeemer and the forgiver as well. So what do you have that you would hold back from Jesus? What do you have that he does not deserve? What do you have that he does not deserve? Uh, want from you. He is now responsible not only for upholding the universe by the word of his power, but upholding every single one of you who belong to him. He's keeping the universe going and he's keeping his redeemed close to him. And when you stumble and you stutter and you fall and you fumble and you falter on the way, Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. My sheep know my voice. They hear my voice. You're going to make it to the end because Jesus is sustaining you. Man, he's good. He's so good. So Jesus holds ultimate responsibility and Jesus deserves ultimate praise. He's keeping the universe going. He is forgiving you moment by moment, day by day. He's holding you till the very end. And he has every right to tell us how we should live. It's pretty good. It's pretty good news. I want to close with two thoughts. What does this mean for us now? How do I, how do I live this out? Okay, two thoughts. Simple thoughts that you could just spend forever thinking about. Thought number one. What, what about this? Now, you have the right to draw near. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, now because of Jesus, we have a right to eat a meal at a table that not even the Levitical priests had the right to eat at. And in a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. And I want you to remember that you have been given the right to just draw near to God. How incredible is that? Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. Only the regular priest could go into the holy place. The regular old people, they didn't get to do that. But if you have put your faith in Jesus, you are now a priest of the Most High God and you've been given a right to eat at a table that we didn't have the right before. How good is that? And not just at a church service. When you're home by yourself in your, in your time of prayer, when you're out in the, in, in the woods, you know, uh, communing with God in nature, wherever you are, you have the right You have the right. Are you uncomfortable with that word? It's literally the word that the author of Hebrews says. You have a right to draw near to God. So draw near. Last thought. Because of Jesus, we now have a responsibility to share this good news. You know, we're going to send a team to Mexico on a mission trip here before too long. We're going to do the trunk or treat to try to reach out to the neighbors you know, we like, to, we like to do some bigger events, bigger outreach sorts of things. But friends, listen to me. Every day, you are a missionary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every day, every conversation, your coworkers, your neighbors, your children need to be evangelized. You have the responsibility to share the gospel. 
And so as we prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord, let's draw near with full assurance of faith. How awesome. I mean, this is not like, a, a, I don't want to over like mysticize it or something like that, but how, think about the symbolism and the potency of this. We get to literally come near through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We get to draw near to God. And we get to be strengthened for the mission that's ahead of us. I'm actually going to invite Myung to come up and lead us uh, his first time leading us in communion as one of our elder candidates. I'm going to invite the musicians to join me on stage as well as we prepare our hearts to receive from the table. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that as our perfect high priest, you took the responsibility for the mess that we've created, the sin that we've committed. And we thank you, Lord, that we have forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, that, that we now have the right to draw near to you. And I ask and I pray that we would give you all the praise that you deserve. Even now as we eat and as we drink and as we sing, Lord, would we give you honor and praise. And would we give you our whole lives because you have the right to command us how to live. So take our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.